Nothing like having the uh, Johnson's family band up here, is it? I like it. I like it. The fill in for Matt, if you don't know, he's in Aruba right now. So uh, knowing Matt as I do, he'll probably show up sunburned because I don't think he tans super well. So if you see him next Sunday, you'll know exactly why he's enjoying some good time. Last week, I was off. appreciate you guys. Let me take off. Ian came and filled in. And uh, I'm not real good at taking hints, but I did notice the attendance was higher last Sunday when I was gone. So... We're going to try a test. I'm going to be gone next Sunday. We'll see what. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, nah, Ian, Ian does a great job. I'm glad he got to come do that. And uh, he will hopefully be doing it a few more times throughout the future and stuff, um, whether he likes it or not. Right, Ian? Um, so, just kidding. Well, I'm excited to kick off this new year with some new things, um, with a new series. And as we kind of jump into uh, what we're going to be in today, actually, if you want to start opening your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22 is where we're going to be today. Uh, but as you're kind of turning there, I want to ask you, just with the person next to you, kind of share, I like, again, group participation you discussed with the person next to you. Well, what does a typical week look like for you? Hey, if you're, say, a typical week, what, what is that? You have certain routines, rhythms, certain habits that you're into. Well, what does that look like? Real quick, the person next to you, if you're sitting next to your spouse, if you don't know, let them tell you. They will tell you what your rhythms are. Uh, what, what are those things every week, every Monday, you got to do this, or every Tuesday? What, what, what are your rhythms of the week? Go ahead and do that real quick. While you're still kind of in conversation, the next question I want you to ask or answer to the person next to you is this. If you could change one thing about your rhythm or your habits, what would it be? One thing, one thing, what would it be? If you're like, you know, I wish I could change just one thing about my rhythm, my, my habits or whatever. I'm getting looks from some people like, I don't like this question. Or maybe even your spouse has been waiting forever for this question to be teed up so they could tell you what you need to change. This is your opportunity to get it out there. I don't know about you, I, I'm, a very, I, I'm very rhythmic in my week. I like to have set structure in how things go. Um, every Monday looks the same kind of for me. You know, for work, I like to come in. That's my day with the staff, trying to work with them. Um, just trying to get ready for the week. Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I like to write my sermons. Tuesday nights, I play basketball. That's my only form of exercise, as you can tell. Um, and that, that's, I, if, if my week gets, get, gets thrown out of rhythm, it messes me up. I'm like, man, I just feel... Um, I, you know, just out of, out of form if I don't have this one thing going on in my week, you know. And, and throughout the entire week, everything likes to be rhythmic. There, there's something about uh, being creatures of rhythm and habits, right? And I say that because we kick off this new year and, and many of us come into each year and we have this desire to do something different, to start a new change. And, and how many of you just thinking in your mind, last year said, I, I, this year is going to be different. And now you're looking at it, 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 it's exactly the way it was, Right? You see, the funny thing is when it comes to our weeks, we, we generally say we want to change, we want to create a new habit, but yet we want to do everything exactly the same. I mean, last year was like, this is going to be the year I lose weight and I start dieting, but I'm not really going to exercise or eat any different. And somehow, just if I think it into existence, it will lose weight, right? But I'm the type of guy that can think about a carrot and gain five pounds. It just, it's magical like that. Uh, Albert Einstein actually calls that insanity. He said this, he said, doing the same thing over and over again, yet expecting different results is the very definition of insanity. Isn't it, though? 
You sit there and think, you know what, this is going to be different. My week is going to be different. My life is going to be different this year. But yet, you, you don't change anything. We do the exact same thing, and you tell people, oh yeah, this is going to be the year that it's going to be different. Nothing changes. It, it, it's insanity to think that we can do the same thing over and over and over again, somehow expect different results. The reality is we have to be intentional when it comes to it. And we are creatures of rhythm, of habits. It's just, well, whether you say or not, honestly, if you really sit back and look, you would say, you know, honestly, there is kind of a ribbit, there's rhythm or habits to my week. And my question that I want to challenge you with this new year as you're processing this, this whole series is intentional, is what, what would it look like if we started a new rhythm? What would it look like if we started a new rhythm for this year? And we came as a church body, as we came as a person, as a family, as a connecting group, as a church, and say, listen, as a church, we want to create a new rhythm that glorifies and honors God, that this year is going to be different because we're going to do it together. What would that look like? What would that look like if we spurred one another towards Christ? I don't know about you, but I struggle to find new rhythms. Uh, matter of fact, when I came into the pastor position a little over a year ago, that was hard for me. I spent 15 years doing student ministry with the rhythm of my week, and suddenly that blew up, and I had to find a new rhythm. And I, for, I'll be honest, for six months, I struggled to see what my week looked like. And just recently, my rhythm has got changed again as I've been taking master classes online at night and doing all that sort of stuff, and I just finished, and now I have some freedom and other stuff in my hands, and my rhythm looks different. Maybe your situation is different than mine. Maybe your, your rhythm has been the same for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, uh, and, and it has not changed. In, I'm not pointing fingers, okay? So uh, uh, maybe it has not changed for you, and yet every year you say the same thing, that, you know, something, I wish I did this. I, I wish this would happen. And there's something about being encouraged by other people. There's something about doing stuff together that spurs us on towards, like, we're not in this alone, right? I mean, the best working out I've ever done in my life is when I worked out with friends and partners who, who helped me out and spurred me on towards. And what would it look like if we did the same thing? And so my challenge to this is, is really reflect in this series. What would it look like if you were to get a new rhythm? What would that look like? And the big idea today that we're going to really focus on today is how to, what, finding your rhythm. How can we find your rhythm? Now, if you're in 2 Kings chapter 22, we're going to use an account in the Bible about a man named King Josiah. I love the account of King Josiah because he comes in a very funny time when there was a, let's just say a bad rhythm going on. And he implements a new rhythm. We're going to look at his life and his example and say, well, what does this look like? And you say, well, what kind of rhythm was going on? Well, to understand, you have to actually go back to verse chapter 21 to see his grandfather, when his grandfather was king. You see, King Josiah was king of Judah, and he, he comes into uh, form, and it says in chapter 22, verse 1, at eight years old, he comes in, but he was raised under a different rhythm in the family. You see, in chapter 21 of 2 Kings, you see a situation where his grandfather named Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 55 years. For 55 years, instilling a certain rhythm into his entire kingdom. You say, what well, was that rhythm? Was it good or bad? Well, verse 2 lets us know. It says, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He imitated detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had disposed before the Israelites. He rebuilt high places that his father Hezekiah destroyed and reestablished altars of Baal. He made an Asherah as king of Ahab of Israel had done. And verse 4 says, he built 
altars in the Lord's temple. The Lord had said, Jerusalem is where I will put my name. In other words, imagine this. Imagine your grandfather comes into the church that has always been around, that your family's always been in, tears down every religious symbol, every Christian thing, and starts putting other things, putting things of witchcraft or other religions to worship in that, in that place, in that synagogue, in that area. This is exactly what his grandfather does. He destroys everything that is in the temple and starts putting in other things. And the places where God says, I will make my name great, he chooses to make other gods' names great. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a church and being like that for 55 years dealing with this? And you think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, that's bad, don't get me wrong. But but it gets even worse. Verse 6, you see, it says, he even sacrificed his son in the fire, practiced witchcraft and divination and consulted mediums and spirits. And in case you were confused, they said he did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. He, it says in another, in, uh, sorry, in 2 Chronicles 34, it kind of mirrors the story. It talks about him sacrificed his son in the valley of Hinnom where he took his son and he sacrificed him to the God of Baal. And this is something they would do as, as a peace offering to God. And if their son survived, then, then God loved him. But if not, it was an offering to God. Eventually, in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about hell, he refers to this mentally. He says Gehenna, which means the Valley of Hinnom, this place where these detestable things happen. You see, in Jesus' time in Jerusalem at the south side, this was the place of the dump where they threw all the heat because no one wanted to live in that area because detestable things happened there. That he did right here. Can you imagine? You remember when grandfather sacrificed Uncle So-and-so in the Valley of Hinnom? Do you remember that? And in case things weren't bad enough, you skip on down to verse 16. It said, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to another. Now, I'll be honest. I'm an exaggerative guy, right? Like, if I've ever caught a fish, it was this big. Never anything smaller. Never. It's never happened. Like, I, I might exaggerate. If, if I nick my finger, I bled all over the place. Even if this is exaggerated, and you want to say, well, did it really all over? It, it, it's, the amount of bloodshed was insurmountable. It's unbelievable to see. He killed tons and tons of innocent people. And this is the pattern built into his life. 55 years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that being around so much wickedness, so much stuff? Some might argue, yeah, we see that today, but just imagine all that. Now we learn from 2 Chronicles that eventually Manasseh repents and God forgives him, but you see in verse 19 of chapter 22, or 21, it says, Amnon, who is his brother, his, sorry, his father, uh, came into power when he was 22 years old. And when he became king, he reigned for two years in Jerusalem, just two years. You're like, that's a real short stint, what's going on? Verse 21, it says, he walked all the ways his fathers had walked and served the idols his fathers served, and he bowed and worshiped to them. He abandoned the Lord of God of his ancestors and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. He, he just did what his father did, repeated that, and even worse. So bad that in verse 23, we learn that Ammon's servants conspired against him and put the king to death in his own house. Now listen, his dad was bad, but this guy's so bad that, that people come and say, listen, we don't want that again, and he's even worse. They kill him before he gets any time to reign, which is why you see in chapter 2, 22, verse 1, he comes into reign at eight years old. Can you imagine an eight-year-old king? My daughter's eight-year-old. She's, a, I think, a very bright kid, but having her be a king or queen, I, I love her death, would be a nightmare. Like, Lord, help us all. You know, there'd be a lot of unicorns and stuff around uh, the, the nation, you know, all sorts of stuff. We'd be watching My Little Pony all the time. Um, Frozen would be the national anthem, I think, you know. 
all this sort of stuff. But an eight-year-old kid comes into power. He comes into reign, which is such a crazy situation. And it says he reigned for 31 years. And remember the rhythm, the pattern, the habits that he's been raised in and dealing with his whole life. And, and what about him? Verse 2, it says he did, what was, he did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in all the ways of his ancestors David. And he did not turn right or left. So something changed. Can you imagine growing up in a situation like that and yet being the person that changes the tide of the family? You don't understand how big of an influence you can have over people, how big of a difference one little decision you make can do. And so we read on in chapter 22, verse 3. Let's read, and it says this. It says, in the 18th year, so after 18 years of being a king, which means he's about 26 years old, uh, King Josiah, the king, sent court secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah. I'm going to butcher these names, but you don't, hopefully don't know them either. Uh, Azaliah, son of Meshulam, to the Lord's temple, saying, Go up to the high priest, Hilkiah, uh, so that he may total up the silver brought in the Lord's temple. And the silver doorkeepers have collected from the people. It is to be given to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. They in turn are to give it to the workmen of the Lord's temple and to repair the damage. They had people literally stationed at the door and they would take offerings as they're coming to the door. Like, pass, as you come through, drop money and this is going toward the Lord's temple. This is what they did. And he says, take that money and I want you to rebuild, repair the temple. He says they are to give it to the carpenters, builders, and masons to buy timber and quarry some stone to repair the temple. But no accounting is to be required from them for the silver given to them since they work with integrity. And so he asks them to rebuild the temple. You see, the first thing I want you to understand when it comes to rhythms is looking at this. Josiah comes and he repairs the temple. Why does he need to repair the temple? Well, first of all, we know from his grandfather that he put all these different pagan things in it and, and, and all these things, and he has to go and rebuild what's going on. If you go back to Hezekiah, what's going on in him? Hezekiah would actually take pieces of the, the church, the synagogue, off to pay debts for other kingdoms that had conquered them. But he comes and he repairs the temple. He sees the priority. Listen, we're never going to get back online if the church, if the temple is in the state it is. Can I tell you your first rhythm when it comes to us? Our first rhythm comes to the church. What does your rhythm when it comes to? We need to come to a point where we reprioritize the church in our life. He comes and looks, and of all the things he looks at, he says, listen, the temple's got to be built back up. Do you know, when I read Scripture and I read through the New Testament, if you really think about it, there's more Scripture pointing to the importance of the church in your life than reading God's Word. Now, no people, I think, would argue with me the importance of God's Word in our life, but yet Scripture talks so much about the need for the church in our life. Why does Jesus, when he gets up and he leaves, he doesn't sit with his disciples and say, listen, write this all down in a book quick. This is going to be the most important thing you have. You need to write it down quickly. Get it together. Hurry. Write down every word I said. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He gives them the church. Like, listen, you guys need the church. You guys need to be together. You guys need to grow in Christ together. Do not walk away from this and say, well, Eric said the Bible's not important. No, I'm saying we need to raise the importance of church in our life. Well, what does church look like in your life? Some of you feel good because we showed up this morning, right? Man, I showed up, I came to church, I'm doing a good thing. But if you take your Bibles and jog with me to Acts chapter 2, let's look at the church real quick. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 48. This is right after the church forms. Look at how it looked. And I want you to ask yourself, does this look like the church I'm involved with, or at least I'm engaged with in my life? Listen to what it says. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 48. It says, They, being the people, disciples, all the new church, devoted themselves to the apostle teachings. 
to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers together were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to the number of those who were being saved. Does that look like the church you're engaged at? Now listen, that might be an indictment on me and the leadership of what we're doing here, but it also makes an indictment on us and our engagement in the church itself. So many of us want to come and we just want to check the box and come once every so often. Do you know the average church attender? The average church attender comes once every five weeks. And we look at ourselves and say, man, that's, that's engaged. Do you see that going on right there? Can I tell you, when it comes to a true church, when you really see church, even coming just once on Sunday, every Sunday and saying, I'm good, you're still missing out on what true church. Church is where you are meeting together. You are doing life together with other believers. They're edifying you. They're growing you. Listen, can I tell you something? Do you know where you're going to grow the most, where you're going to be shepherd the most, where you're going to find accountability and encouragement and God's presence is most, most visible to you? Is when you engage in the church, not just come you engage. For us here, let me tell you where we believe that is, that's through connecting groups. If you don't come to connecting groups, if you're coming to this, listen, can I tell you something? You're missing what's going on. People who are truly engaged in connecting groups and truly part and participating in class and are communicating throughout the week, listen, they say it is life-giving. I, I, I couldn't survive without it. And yet so many of us want to come in and check our box once a week, if that. Can I tell you something, just to kind of step on a little more toes because I'm on a roll right here. We, we, we started taking attendance and trying to track what's going on just to get a pulse of our church and see what's going on. And if you were to take the top 50% of our church, our attenders who come regularly and our stuff, the, the best average you get right there is about 60% of our church. It's come 60% attendance. Now, I'm not trying to step on toes and beat up on people, but I'm saying this, listen, if I only spent once every five weeks with my wife, how would my marriage be with her? If I came 60% of the time, like you're going to get 60% of my energy, my affection, my love, how would that happen? How would that work out for me? And we wonder why when we read in Scripture about the church, something's missing in our life. Like, I don't see that. And the church is just, it's, it's useless because we're not engaging. And so for us, listen, the first rhythm we have to do is find our rhythm in the church. How are we going to engage? Now, most of us, I know, I can hear it. I'm hearing it right now under the mutters of your breath. You're saying, uh, your excuse, I don't have time or I have other commitments. I get it. We are busy, busy people. There's so much going on that's consuming and taking our attention. But can I tell you, to be honest, it's really not an issue of time. It's an issue of priority, right? For example, recently, I had a plumbing leak in my house, I found out. You know, I found out because when you find water running where it shouldn't be going, you have a plumbing issue in your house. Can I tell you what I do? I reprioritize my day around getting that taken care of. And I go, well, sorry, I had a football game I was going to watch, so I'll have to mess with that later. You see, suddenly I realize there's something. I reprioritize what's going on. When we see stuff going on, when we see a need, when we see the value, we reprioritize our day. We reprioritize our life around something. The problem is we don't see value to it, do we? We sometimes don't engage to it. It reminds me of the joke of a, a, a husband and a wife went in, and this husband just had some sort of elements going on. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Doctor ran all their tests, and after they ran their tests, the doctor says, uh, uh, can I take the wife and just talk to you privately? And she, she took him, and the doctor took her in the private room and said, listen, I want to tell you right now, like, you, your, your husband has a very rare condition. 
And to be honest, his survival is kind of dependent on you. You see, uh, for your husband's survival, he's going to be carried off, waited for on hand and foot. He's going, to need, he's going to need at least three to four massages every day to take care of. He needs to relax. I mean, probably be watching the TV shows all day. Meals need to be, you probably need to raise the nostrils of your meals and make nicer meals for him. Steaks would be good. Like, he needs to have friends over whenever he wants. Like, he, you, you are going to have to do everything and take care of him. Do you understand? And she goes, I think I understand what you're saying. And the wife walks back in the room, and the husband says, what's going on? And his wife says, well, the doctor says you have about three weeks to live. <laughs> now, we joke about that. None of us would probably say that, but reality is his wife saying, listen, you know what? Based on all that, my husband's really not a priority in this situation. Listen, when it comes to God, when it comes to the church, if you're not feeling, if you're not finding the things we're reading about, can I tell you something? The, the question, you can ask us, and it may be us, and we need to address that. But the question might be you, how engaged are you really being? Like, like the church is the bride of Christ. God, Christ left the church because he knew the value of it. It is so incredibly important if you're not engaging. And so when we see the value, we will reprioritize a life. Here's a test for you. Here's a test just to see the priority of the church in your life. Listen, if you miss church one week, does it affect you? I mean, honestly, does it affect you? Do you feel something missing? Do you feel suddenly like, man, I feel like attack. I feel that need, that encouragement. Is there something missing? If you can miss three weeks, two weeks of church and nothing, listen, can I tell you something? You have not prioritized the church. You have not made it engaging it important. Here's the other side of that test. If you miss one week of church and you don't come, listen, does the church hurt because of your absence? You're probably not engaged. There's a reason God, uh, Paul calls the church the body of Christ. If my arm suddenly decided to take three weeks off, can I tell you something? I would notice. It would not be lacking. My wife loved her to death, but when she got pregnant and she got towards the end of her pregnancy, she had a condition come up called Bell's palsy, if you've ever heard that before. It's where half your body, your, her, half her face literally went paralyzed. And so uh, half of her face could not move, another face could, and me being a loving husband could not stop laughing at it all the time. She'd smile, you know, go up this side, and she'd eat and drool out of the side of her mouth. And, and the doctor told us it would go away, so I felt comfortable making fun. No, I didn't make fun of it to her face. Um, but, yeah, the doctor told us it would go away. But can I tell you something? It affected her life. Like, I couldn't tell if she was happy or mad at me because half was smiling, the other half was frowning. Like, we had to use a bib on her to try to take care of it. It's all these sorts of things. When, when half her face took a week off, two weeks off, listen, we noticed when you don't come to church, if, if the church is like, oh, you've been gone for a month, I didn't even, I didn't even realize you were gone. Can I tell you something? You, you, this is probably not a priority in your life. Some of you might be sitting there saying, well, I, I don't know how, Eric. Well, whose excuse is that? Have you sought help? Can I tell you something? Nothing would bring more joy for me and the elders. You come say, listen, I'd love to engage in the church. Can you help us? Nothing would bring more joy to your connecting group teacher to say, listen, I, I want to engage in this class. Or maybe you need to be honest and like, listen, I'm just not engaging in this class. Can I tell you what every single one of these teachers would say? Let me help you connect with another one. We want you to engage. Can I tell you my heart? At the end of the day, if you can't find a way to engage this church, I would love to help you find a church that you would. Because I'm not just about building our church up. I'm about building you up, building the kingdom up. And if that means that cost of our church doing that, then I want that. But to come and just do what we do week in, week out is not going to work. It's a rhythm we have to build in. So find your rhythm when it comes to the church. And Josiah realized that. And what does he do? He starts rebuilding the temple. What's beautiful to me is what happens after that. He starts rebuilding the temple. He starts seeing the priority of the church. He starts getting that rhythm in his life. And look at verse 8. It says, In the high priest Hilkiah told the court secretary Shaphan, he said, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple, and gave the book to Shaphan to read it. 
And the court secretary Shaphan went to the king and reported, your servants have emptied out the silver that was found in the temple and have given it to those doing the work. So those who oversee the Lord's temple, then the court secretary Shaphan told the king, the priest Hilkiah has also given me something else. He's given me a book, and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And I love verse 11. It says, when the king heard the words of the law, uh, sorry, of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He, he, the rhythm, the second rhythm he finds is, is God's word, the Bible. He rediscovers God's word. I ask myself and I read, I'm like, how do you lose God's word? Like, really, like, this is like, how do you lose God's word? How does this happen? Some scholars believe that maybe it was in the Ark of the Covenant and they just never looked into it. Others actually believe Hilkiah hid it so no one would destroy it. And then realizing that this king, there's something different, said, I believe I can trust him with the word of God and begins to give it to him. And when he reads it, he begins to see truth for what it is. It begins to change him. It was right in front of him, I believe, the whole time. Can I tell you, when it comes to us, God's word is honestly right in front of us. If I were to ask you, think for a second, how many Bibles do you own? Be honest. Think for a second. If you're having trouble, I can give you statistics that might help you. Because the average American owns three to four Bibles. The average American owns three to four Bibles. As a matter of fact, 88% of entire people in the United States at least own one Bible. At least one. Number of Bibles that were sold in the U.S. alone uh, uh, every day is 168,000. Every single day, Bibles sold in the United States alone. It's the number one selling book. Last year alone, 20 million Bibles were sold. Last year, over 20 million. The Gideons, which if you need a Bible talking about Gideons, go talk to my friend J.D. The Gideons last year distributed 59,460,000 Bibles worldwide last year. 59, 59 million Bibles they just gave away to people. That, that's more than 100 Bibles per minute. And by the time I finish this sermon, there will be about 3,000 Bibles given away by the Gideons alone. The Bible is not a shortage of finding Bibles. They're everywhere. You can download a free app to the version and have every kind of translation you could possibly want. It's not a shortage. It's a matter of do we use it. And the sad truth is when you read the statistics, we're not using it. As a matter of fact, one out of every three Americans who attend church regularly say they regularly read their Bible. 32% of you guys in here who regularly come to church read your Bible regularly. Let me give you the other side of that. 35% regularly in church reported had never used their Bible in 2019 on their own. Never used their Bible. 35%. To add on to that, one in five regular uh, attenders of church said they have all read the Bible at least once all the way through. One out of five. A Bible, a book that we say is so important that holds the truth of life and we stake our line up. Many of us have never even read it and we try to walk around like we know what's going on. It's not an issue of is it present, it's an issue of are we using it? But we're not making God's word a priority. Now some of us will look and say, man, Eric, I just don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time for that rhythm, and I'm so busy. I'm going from here to there, but let's, let's be honest when it comes to time. You know, just to read the Bible the whole way through would take you 12 minutes a day in a year. 12 minutes a day of your time. If you were just to read the New Testament in the entire year, it would take you three minutes a day. Three minutes a day of reading, you should read the entire New Testament in the entire year. Old Testament would be nine minutes. You say, well, what about, I don't know. You know, the average person spends about 30 minutes a day on emails. And we say we don't have time. And listen, can I tell you something? If you think I'm pointing the finger at you, I'm pointing it at me more than you. This is so hurting. I was up here praying like, God, I'm such a hypocrite getting in front of these people talking about this. It's this. It's, listen, it's, it's a rhythm that we have to say, listen, this is important. These, these are the words of life. This is, this is God's love story and truth for my life that he gave for me. And I let it collect dust on my shelf like it's some beautiful decoration. This is like, hey, God, how do I do this? Well, I have the answer for you. And I try to sit here and go, man, maybe by osmosis, it might just sink in, like might just roll into my mind. 
And, and so listen, our rhythm is we have to come and pri- prioritize God's word. We have to rediscover God's truth in our life and start reading it for ourselves. Some of you who maybe have never done this before, can I say, where do you start? I have some things on the screen. First, get a, get a Bible you understand. People might fight me on this, but listen, fall in love with a story before you get lost in the details. Uh, Ian's all into Star Wars, and I've been asking him all sorts of questions watching. Listen, I, think, I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. I still kind of do, but I went and watched it all again. And, and listen, for me to start appreciating, I have to understand the story, what's going on. And then all of a sudden, details started to matter. I think when I was eight years old and I got saved, my grandmother gave me a King James Version Bible. I, I thought I was reading another language. Like, thou says the Lord, I'm, I don't know who thou is, but he's all over my Bible. Like, he's just, he is all over the place. Get a Bible you understand. Listen, if, an easy one is a new international reading version. Find one that you understand. If you need to start with the message, some people might not like this, but fall in love with the story and then get lost in the details. Start small and build your way up. For some of you, listen, if you get a Bible you understand, then you maybe need to get a plan. Get a plan that you can walk through, that can guide you through, that'll keep you accountable. They have so many things nowadays on the internet. You have you version, you can get plans left and right. One of my favorite ones I'd encourage you to do is called the Reading Scripture app. They have videos that explain, that set up the story so you can understand what's going on and why it's about and takes you through the entire Bible. Man, find a plan that works for you. Get a guide. You say, I don't understand what I'm reading. Listen, buy a study Bible. If you're a first-time Christian, you've never grown in the face, listen, get a life application Bible that tells you, how do I live this out? What well, tells you exactly in your, you're talking about a 30 to $60 investment to start understanding scripture. If you're a veteran as a Christian, you've been growing your whole life, listen, find a study Bible, invest in some commentaries, and dig deeper into God's word. There's no excuse for it. And at the end of the day, keep it simple. One to two chapters a day. Do 12 to 30 minutes a day, and you'll read the entire Bible through in a year. But what would that look like? if we all fell in love with God's word. If God's word suddenly became a priority, like, listen, did you, did you know what he said about me in this? Do you know that, you know the Bible says that if I confess my sins, God is faithful and just to forgive me of all unrighteousness. Can you believe that? Like, if I just said, God, I'm sorry, my bad, bro. Like, he, he forgives me. Like, that, that just blows my mind. Do you, do you realize that God's word says that even in my worst possible condition, he sent his son to die on the cross for my sin? Like, do, do you realize he said that about me? Do you realize that in every situation, God's looking out for my good and is working for me in all things? Like, do you know God's word says that about me? Do you realize that God says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can fear no evil? You know why? Because he's there with me, guiding me every step of the way. You know what kind of comfort that brings? That comes from knowing and valuing God's word. But many of us like this have lost God's word in the shuffle of three to four Bibles on our shelf, and we never look at it. Guilty. Rhythm number two is God's word. Find the Bible. The last thing I love is this, and don't lose me here, because this is the most important, I think. And so verse 11 says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, he didn't just hate his clothes and like, man, oh, Abercrombie and Fitch. He didn't just start tearing up his clothes. And back in this time, that was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of grief. It was a sign of, I, woe is me. He says, then he commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shepham, and Ekbar, son of Micaiah, the course secretary of Shepham, the king's secretary. A lot of people is what he said. And he said, go and inquire of the Lord, the Lord for me, the people in all Judah, about the words in this book that he found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. Can I tell you what he does? Josiah starts searching for truth. He, 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 he reprioritizes the church. He discovers God's word. And then he starts discovering truth. He f- finds truth. Our rhythms allow truth to start infiltrating our life. 
Can I ask you this? How do you respond to truth? When you read scripture and something is in there, how do you respond? Let me say it like this. When was the last time you read the Bible and your opinion was changed based off what you read? Honestly. I read this, man, I always thought this way, but I just, I just can't get away from what this says. You see, honestly, when it comes to us, truth is either found or it's created. There, there's no other way around it. When it comes to us reading the Bible, we're either reading scripture to change us or we're reading it to change scripture to fit our needs and fit our desires. We proof text out of all we can and say, listen, this is what I want it to say, and so I'm going to find scripture to support my stance instead of allowing scripture to change us. And so for us, it needs to become, we need to read for change, not for validation. There's a big difference. When I read God's word, I'm not just looking for stuff that makes me feel good and that validates my points, but that convicts me and changes me back to what God actually says. When's the last time truth has changed you? We get so stuck in our ways. Listen, this whole thing is about this. It's finding your rhythm. What would it look like this year if you found your rhythm in the church and you engaged you start doing life with people that encouraged you, held you accountable, that they loved on you in your darkest moments and celebrated with you in your greatest times. What would it look like if you start doing that for other people? What would it look like if you actually started reading God's word as a story and understood how it fit together and understood this narrative and not just hodgepodge it together and said, I'm, I'm just picking and choosing all over the place. What would happen when God's truth changed your life and you suddenly realized, God, this is what you want, not what I always thought? where God becomes real than has ever happened. Can I tell you what would happen? It's the same thing that happened to my biological father, 2004. In 2004, my dad's life was radically changed. A matter of fact, I was just with him last, that's where I was going last Sunday, seeing him in Spur, Texas. You see, growing up, my dad didn't want much to do with me. I saw him about twice a year. And I remember I grew up in a Christian home, and I'd go see my dad. I knew, even though he attended church every once in a while on Sundays, this dude was not a Christian. He tried to get me to party with him, to drink with him. He would download pornography and try to get me to look at it with him. Like, he would do all sorts of stuff that was just, just really just wicked and stuff. And I remember whenever I felt called to ministry at 13 years old, I called my grandmother and told her, but I didn't call my dad because I didn't want him to know because I knew he would not celebrate with me. And lo and behold, my dad found out through my grandmother, and he called me up and said, well, what's going on? I said, I feel like God's calling me to ministry. His first thing, he goes, people do that for a living? I said, some, yes. And he remembered saying this, and it stuck with me. He says, I'd rather you shovel crap for a living than become a minister. And that's what I walked away with. I remember in 2004, when I went to go see him, just expecting the same old, same old, I walked in, and my dad's sitting on the couch reading a Bible. And I brought my best friend with me, and I thought he was making fun of me. And I walk in, I said, what are you doing, man? I mean, literally, I thought, I thought he was just picking on me because I had my friend there, like he was trying to put on a show. He said, man, I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, and, and literally, this is what I said. I said, why? <laughs> Can you believe that? I said, why? He said, man, we got a new pastor in town. And he said, for the new year, he challenged all of us to, to for, for one month, to turn off all electronics and instead read God's word instead. He said, I, I thought I'd give it a try. And you know what I said in a loving way? I said, yeah, we'll see. I was, I was irritated. I was mad all those years. My dad in that one month went and read scripture every single day, and through reading it, he came to realize what the gospel was. He came to realize who Christ was. He came to realize who he was. To the point that three months later, he called me up and said, Eric, hey, I'm getting baptized this Sunday. I said, what for? He said, man, I, got, I wasn't a Christian. I was faking it all those years. He said, I'm giving my life to the Lord, and he goes, and he got saved. And can I tell you what radically changed when we go down there? You know what we did? We sat and talked about church. He teaches a Sunday school class now. He's a church treasurer. Can you believe that? 
Can you, I can't, okay. Like, he's the church treasure at the church. He, he has, he has uh, commentaries all over, and he reads, and we talk about our faith. Listen, it, it's radically changed, all because what? Because he found a new rhythm in his life. I'm not telling you because it might happen to you. I'm telling you because if you do this, it will happen to you. And as a young 18 and now a 33-year-old man, can I tell you something? Listen, it means a lot to me seeing that change. And if you as a husband, a wife, a child, a person, whoever you are, think it doesn't matter, listen, you can create a new rhythm in your family that would change everything. And it means a lot. We, we went from a place where I didn't want to go see him to now to joy going talk to him, spending him talking about the Lord. And it's a joy more so that I know when my dad dies, I know where he's going because this truth, because his new rhythm changed his life. It all starts with you. Every revival that's ever happened has not happened in a big group setting. It started with one person, and it caught fire. It all starts in what 2 Corinthians chapter 34 says. It says, Josiah, in the eighth year's reign, what did he do? He began to seek God. And so that's my challenge as a church. Listen, I, I'm asking you to come with me on this journey to start seeking after the Lord, to start pursuing God, to creating a new rhythm. I'm asking you to hold me accountable to it. I'm not just asking you to do it for yourself. I'm asking you to help me. Listen, I, I struggle on myself. And you're like, man, you should be good at this. I'm not. I'm not at all. But what would it look like as us as a church if we started doing this and next year, like, listen, we did that right. So for you, the challenge is this. Find your rhythm in the church. Find your rhythm in God's word. And find your rhythm when it comes to truth. And so where you're at, I'm just going to ask if you to bow your head and just close your eyes and just spend a second. If God's convicting you, do not, do not walk out of this room not doing something about that. Some of you in here right now, I'm telling you right now, you, you, you are my dad. You're in that same situation. You come to church every other week, every so often, because that feels like the right thing to do. And here's my challenge. For one month, give it a try. One month, give it a try. And I'm going to tell you something. My God can change your life just like he did my dad's, and it's the greatest thing ever. Start a new rhythm for your family. You don't have kids yet? Listen, you, you, whatever you're at, do it now just for yourself even. You're sitting next to someone on the ride home. That's your thing. You go home with your family, kids, like, hey, guys, let's find a new rhythm together. Would you hold me accountable? Let's do this together. And find the joy that's in it. And so where you're at, I'm going to give you just a second just to reflect and allow God to stir in whatever way you need to. God, for me and my family, this year will be different. I don't say this for show. I don't say this for whatever, affirmation. You want God, I'm just, this is for me and you, God. For this year, me and my family will choose to serve the Lord. God, forgive me for getting off track, for just forgetting that, forgetting what's important, forgetting for, for losing your word, for losing the importance of the church that I need it in my life, for, for losing the sight of truth, God. God, I pray you would inspire and change me. God, I pray others would join me on this journey and find the same joy that others have found in doing it. I pray for someone in this room who's, who's like my dad. 
that maybe thinks they're saved or, or knows they're not saved or has been going through the motions. God, I pray they take this challenge and see if your word lines up with their life. God, you are good. You will not allow this time, this effort, this, this attempt by us to, to be in void. So God, inspire us, drive us, and change us, God. I do pray this year would be different. God, I love you for who you are, who you've always been, who you always will be. God, I pray you change lives this year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.